Well, hello and good day, marvelous podcast family. What a privilege and honor to be with you as always. I hope that wherever you're hearing this in the world right now, you're doing fantastic. And I'm sending you all of my love, support, and energy through the airwaves, wishing you all of the best. We have an absolutely mind-blowing, outstanding episode of the show for you today. We have my friend Robert Grant on, and we are talking about mathematical breakthroughs, Egypt, AI, cybernetics, and consciousness. I met Robert back at the in Egypt with the Resonance Science Foundation trip. We've stayed in touch since, and he's been doing some absolutely mind-blowing work in mathematics, in making all of these amazing discoveries, and... He is basically going to blow your mind. Um, it's such a treat to talk to him always and to share what he is working on and, and all these things that he's coming up with. So some of the things we talk about in this episode, I'm going to break it up into two parts because it's a little bit long and it is all amazing. But we talk about mathematics as a language of communication, taking the journey of self-exploration, why we attract what we judge in life, uh, how Robert is uh, got a scholarship in music and actually has a very firm understanding and grasp of music and the power of music. Robert's thoughts on world peace, learning to see through another's perspective, the need for more empathy. Um, Robert speaking at the Vatican. He also spoke with the Dalai Lama. And then a little bit later, we start to get into Egypt, uh, mirroring primes, Yahweh as a math algorithm, Richard Feynman in the 137, and so much more. This is really an absolutely phenomenal, incredible episode. You're going to love it. If you want to support and spread the vibe, please share this episode on Instagram. Tag me at Matt Belair. Tag at Robert Grant. Let us know if you have any questions or any feedback. He's pretty active on Instagram these days, um, just sharing some of his work and his discoveries and and getting it out to the people so people are reaching out also you can uh become a patron thank you so much to all my patrons it really helps immensely and i also want to thank the newest members of the master mind body and spirit academy baby tinsley and damien thanks so much for joining the academy you get access to the 21 day soul compass course 21 lessons to help you live in the heart and soul and direct that and use your mind to navigate the way from your truest and deepest expression of who you are so thank you guys for joining the academy you go to mattbelair.com check that out also the patreon and everything's linked up there as well and uh but the best thing that you can do if you want to support the show is one kind act today wherever you are in the world if you like what you're hearing here please do one kind act for another human being today it's the absolute best thing that you can do for those of you guys who are interested in coaching and you want to work one-on-one and you're really serious about uncovering your life purpose, your life mission, your calling, you want to break through limiting beliefs, uh, victim mentality, self-sabotage, and you want to design your preferred reality mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically in every environmental thing that you could want, hit me up, matt at zenathlete.com or go to mattbelair.com forward slash coaching. Would love to hear from you and what you want to build. I'm so blessed to be working with some absolutely amazing people who are just working on awesome projects. Some people are coaches, some people want to be authors, but everybody wants to give back. And I truly believe when we are giving back from our hearts and who we are, the universe wants nothing but our success. And it's amazing to watch how when the alignment happens, things start happening. And I love getting the messages of, Matt, you're never going to believe this. And that's always because a person is stepping into alignment. They're making space for that. They're getting very clear. And so if that's something that you're interested in, just make an inquiry and uh, happy to help you out. So 
Let's get into it. Let's come into a state of peace and coherence before we dive into this episode. Wherever you are in the world, uh, just stop what you're doing. Take in a deep breath in through your nose. Hold that breath and just let it out slowly, filling every cell and every muscle and fiber of your being with peace, joy, enthusiasm, connection, inspiration, and ready to take on part one of this incredible podcast with the amazing Robert Grant. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Master Mind, Body, and Spirit Show. I'm your host, Matt Belair. Today's guest offers a modern polymathic approach to integrating innovation, mathematics, artistic design, and entrepreneurship into balanced creations intended to benefit all. He is the founder, chairman, and managing partner of Strasby Crown, a growth equity holding company with a broad portfolio of company and asset holdings spanning healthcare, clean energy, social media, and financial technology. He is an accomplished sculptor, artist, and musician, and holds several patents and various intellectual property in the fields of DNA and phenotype expression, human cybernetic implantology, biophotonics, and electromagnetism. He has multiple publications in unified mathematics and physics related to his discovery of quasi-prime numbers, the world's first predictive algorithm determining infinite prime numbers, and a unification wave-based theory connecting and correlating fundamental mathematical constants such as pi, Euler, alpha, gamma, and phi. In what he considers his finest achievement and crown jewels, he is father to three beautiful children and lives with his wife, youngest daughter and newborn newborn son in Orange County, California. Welcome to the show, my friend, Robert Grant. <laughs> Thank you. Good to see you, Matt. And by the way, to be clear, um, my, my children are definitely the, the, the most important, significant achievement probably in my life, but they're certainly not my crown jewels. <laughs> well, man, congratulations. I know that you have a newborn. Yours is six months. And yeah. uh and mine is five, so that's really wonderful. And uh, man, what you've been working on the last few years and, and since I've known you is, is truly amazing. Uh, to watch your work, it seems like every single time that we talk or we communicate, you are discovering something new in the field of mathematics. Uh, you're a very interesting character and uh, it's been a pleasure just to watch what you're doing and what you're creating and it's, it's really uh, mind-blowing, outstanding, just to see what you're, you're producing. So why don't you uh, give the audience a little bit about uh, your background and uh, what you're working on now? Because as I understand it, every single time we talk, you've, you've had these new discoveries, and I know that you have some that you're going to share. So I'll let you kind of give a little bit about your background, and we'll sure. just dive in. Sure. Well, um, I talked about it last time. I'll be brief on this. But um, you know, I spent most of my life and career in the healthcare space. And then uh, seven years ago, almost eight years ago now, I decided to be an entrepreneur. And after having been like a pharmaceutical executive for, for 25 plus years. So it was a major shift for me. And uh, I decided to dedicate my efforts to abundance rather than scarcity. And not just abundance for me, but abundance for everybody. Because I think abundance actually is a mindset. And it's a mindset that you can shift it to attract more abundance in your life. Um, and I think gratitude is a really big aspect of that. So the, the most grateful people that I know uh, that practice gratitude daily 
are also the more generous ones. And the ones that are the most generous tend to be the ones that enjoy the most amount of abundance and whatever they define as abundance. Um, and, and I'm feeling really good about life right now in general. I feel very abundant on every aspect. And it's not just about, you know, how much money you have in the bank or you don't have in the bank. Uh, it's, it's your way of perceiving the world around you. It's making the shift from thinking the universe happens to you and understanding the higher level that it's happening for you. And, and I think that's probably the biggest shift that I've experienced over these last few years is, is learning to get my arms around that context of what it means to have, have the universe happen for me and, uh, and how I can participate in that uh, both consciously and unconsciously. Amazing intro, man. I didn't expect you to start that way, but I know that um, I, I had the privilege of going through one of the courses that you've made for the Resonance Science Foundation. Again, it was, it was very deep. Um, there's a basis in physics and math, but you're correlating all that to consciousness. And so maybe that's a good spot to begin. And what are your views on consciousness and how do we tap into a more uh, fulfilling perspective? Because we do live in polarity and you speak about that and you have one side where you could say the universe is against me. It's always um, causing me troubles or you can say the universe is working for me. And it's really a night and day shift that will change how you perceive reality and how you navigate all of the things you're going to experience in life. First of all, I think that, you know, a lot of people right now are concerned. We've got fires going on in Australia, uh, which have burned now what I've seen something in the order of two times the size of the, the nation of Belgium in like, you know, square acres. And that's just incredible. So my heart goes out to the people in Australia dealing with that. I used to live in Australia and my first child, my daughter Madeline was born in Australia. And uh, I love living there. But also people are really concerned right now about the potential for World War III. Um, you know, the, the late, the most recent uh, issue that came up with the killing of the, um, of the Iranian, uh, you know, number two in command, kind of controls all the military and everything, uh, has been a real issue that has kind of woken a lot of people up as well to start thinking, well, maybe there's a potential for a war coming. And I, and I think it's really interesting because I, I don't believe that the world's a difficult place to live in because people don't like each other. Uh, I actually believe that the reason why the world is sometimes a difficult place to live in is because people don't like themselves. And as they don't like themselves, what happens is they tend to reflect around them all the things that they don't like about themselves. And it creates this interesting dichotomy where people create uh, increased polarity and judgment. And what I learned is that whenever I start judging things now, I stop myself and I try to say, it could be judging things or people, I try to stop myself and say, you know what, the thing that I'm judging, I am that, I am. I, I, I am those things and I just don't want to recognize them about myself and that's why they trigger me. That's why they get me angry. So whenever you feel like there's something that triggers you, like watching Donald Trump on TV, for some people, right, they go nuts over that. I used to go nuts over that. And uh, I don't as much anymore because I realized that there were aspects of Donald Trump that were triggering me because they were aspects of who I am. And I, and I really think that the, that the whole purpose for us being here from a consciousness perspective is to understand and learn who we are. Follow the, the exhortation of Socrates, which is to know thyself and then love thyself. You know, those two simple words of know thyself sound simple, but it's the hardest thing you'll ever do. And I think mathematics and understanding mathematics is the language 
that your unconscious uses to communicate with you so that you can help to interpolate and interpret those reflections back of your own personality is uh, recognition of that and understanding that language is being able, like being able to speak with yourself for the first time. And that's why I think, you know, teaching mathematics has been so fulfilling for me. And the first time I presented when I was in Egypt with you uh, just about two years ago, it's over two years ago, I was shocked when half the room was in tears at the end of the presentation that I presented mathematics in a way that people could understand it as a language of communication. So that communication is, is with, you know, even our own subconscious and unconscious thought. So that's a, that's a big ship uh, that I think that all the mathematicians and polymaths and philosophers learn over time, that it really is the journey of self-exploration into the hero's journey. But that journey into self-exploration is accomplished through understanding the language of your unconscious mind, which is teaching us to love and accept ourselves, not the narcissistic way, not the way that, you know, I look in the mirror, I take a selfie and I say, okay, you know, yo, I'm hot or whatever, right? That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about genuine, true self-love, which means that you accept yourself, you forgive yourself for those things that you previously judged. And as you do that more and more, then you'll notice it doesn't show up as often in your life. You know, we, we attract what we judge in life until we no longer judge that which we attract. So if you think about life, you know, I've experienced this myself over and over again. All the times I was judging things negatively, I would attract those things more and more until I would integrate those things and no longer judge them. And then once I no longer judge them, then they wouldn't show up anymore or they would have a lot less triggering power on me. So the journey in mathematics for me has been a journey of self-discovery. And that's been the most powerful part of the last few years for me is to, to learn more and more and accept more and more who I am. And at this middle age point in life, I just turned 50. Uh, I think that's uh, something that a lot of people feel and a lot of people probably uh, struggle with trying to learn acceptance, you know, because we build up our own personas uh, to the outside world and we, we fall in love with the reflection that we want to see in the mirror, but not actually what is in the mirror. It's like the Michael Jackson song. <laughs> Uh, yeah, man. Very, very beautifully said. And I was going to save this till later, but we're kind of moving in that direction. I was just curious in these studies of, of mathematics and physics and everything that you're doing, you know, interestingly enough, when we met, I was trying to figure out like, okay, how does he know all this stuff? Right. But one of the things that I kind of pieced together was you have a, you're very good at music. You can play the piano amazingly. You also know seven languages and one of them goes forward and backwards. Like he, well, or you I mean, read it forward and backwards or something? Korean, uh, Korean language is, has a syntax that's backward from English. Um, so instead of saying, I am going to the store, it is I to the store going am. <laughs> Whereas yeah. Chinese is just I go store. There's no participles. There's no nothing. They don't like make it really beautiful in between. And they don't have all this unnecessary language. They speak almost in binary. Um, and each language has, you know, different ways to read it. Japanese can be read backwards. Um, and same thing with uh, Hebrew. Hebrew is read backwards. But I'll make a correction. I don't actually pay, play piano well, but I do uh, play all the wind instruments. So I was a musician. Uh, I, I was a trumpet uh, performance major in my undergraduate uh, at university. 
and then I realized that, you know, just as so many of us have to do, it's like, okay, I had a scholarship. I was good enough to get a full scholarship, but I was not good enough to really make a living out of it. And while I was still in college, I came to that realization and I said, okay, I've got to go to business school because I've got to buckle down and get serious about life. And that was one of the first shifts that I made towards building that outward persona that is what the world expected of me and what I expected of myself. You know, I'm going to be a dad one day and I got to provide for my family. So I have to put away these frivolous pursuits like music and put away frivolous pursuits like art. Now I spend most of my time in those same pursuits uh, because I really, truly enjoy them. So, you know, you can skip rungs on the ladder of life, but eventually you have to go back and visit them. Hmm. And you'll touch each one of those rungs that you skipped along the way. And that's one of the things that I found, uh, you know, that we also put away from our minds the importance that the heart plays in emotion. You know, we're, we're taught in a way almost, you know, socially by society that we should be kind of like without so much emotion. We want to be more logical, right? And um, I was laughing today when I saw your little promotion for this podcast and you had the, the, the guy named Data, right, off of the 1990 Star Trek uh, generation. I was laughing. I'm like, okay, so wait, is that what you think of me as? <laughs> Well, partially how your mind works. Yes, definitely. <laughs> you and him would have an amazing conversation for sure. But you know what? It's, it's one of the things I've learned through this whole process is I've gone deeper and deeper into math, which is the most objective of science. So I, I went through a very difficult time in 2016 and where I experienced a lot of betrayal from friends and uh, all, all kinds of people that I had known for a long time. And they thought I was gonna lose a war that was in, in business or lose a battle. And I ended up not losing, but I still felt like, I, I mean, I won the battle, but I still felt like I lost. Because so many people that I had been, you know, I thought were with me for the right reasons, et cetera, kind of, you know, left me for, for dead as it were. And I totally forgive them now. So if you're listening, don't, don't feel bad. Uh, I, I don't feel bad about it at all. In fact, I'm extraordinarily grateful for it. It opened up something in me, put me in a cocoon, just like a caterpillar goes in a cocoon, become a butterfly or something. It was my experience. It turned me inward. And because of the nature of subjectivity of relationships, where you start to ask all kinds of questions, why would they do this to me? What did I do to them? How could, you know, how was this warranted? How was this fair? I, um, it forced me to go back to the most objective of things that I could think about because I needed to retest every assumption that I'd ever made, which was, is one plus one really two? Because my experience was so difficult and so challenging in dealing with that betrayal that I went inward and literally I went from a very extroverted person to becoming very introverted uh, for about two years. And that's when I started to uh, express art. That's when I started to really, really get deep into mathematics. I'd always been interested in it, but never, to the depth that I've, you know, that I dove into it at that point. And I reconstructed the objective sciences from scratch because I wanted to test everything because I thought, okay, if a relationship is totally subjective, then what is objective? And I need to understand, you know, is one plus one really two? And then I can stand on that ground and say, okay, I know that. Now let's go to one plus two. Is that three? Right. And then you reconstruct it all the way through. And for me, it was, it was not about relearning mathematics. It was about finding myself and finding what ground I stood on. Who was I as a person? 
And, and so that's the way I went about it. And in the process, I discovered this language of mathematics that maybe at least in this age or time period had not been seen before that was meaningful to me and extremely powerful to me. And, and so I, I felt like it was uh, becoming time for me to share it. And then the Sim Harriman, who I worked pretty closely with for a few years prior to that, uh, asked me to give a presentation of it in Egypt that you were at. And, uh, and that was kind of the door opening for it. And now all of a sudden it's like taking over a huge part of my life. And, you know, I still have all the companies and everything that I still am responsible for, but I am now uh, practicing and, and doing the things that I really love. Uh, I, I, every day for me is like a joy because I get to do all the things I really love. And I get to accept the things that I'm good at and the things that I'm not good at and be okay with that. And, um, and that's why I, I just feel like life has been, it's been really, really cool the last couple of years. And so I, uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to be here with you to, to share this journey with you. And mathematics is not what we've been taught in school. I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to just say this. And it's not that anyone had wrong intentions. I, I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I, I, I just don't. I, I think that the more credence you place on conspiracy theories, the more they show up in your life. And, and the more things you judge that are conspiracy, you'll start finding conspiracies all around you. Again, because you will attract what you judge until you no longer judge what you attract. If there's one thing that people can take away from this meeting today, I hope it's that, that if you spot it, that means you got it. The thing that you keep experiencing over and over and over again, look internal. The answers are within. So it's not even taking a red pill or a blue pill, right? The red pill is just saying, you know what? I'm going to check out my own shit and I'm going to get into my own stuff before I really start looking out on the outside world. And I'd spent my entire world experiencing the world because it's around me on the outside of me. When maybe actually it's just all a reflection of what's on the inside of me. And that's what we experience in life. And maybe that is what it means to be the universe working for you than instead of working to you or working against you. Hmm. Beautifully put. I like it. In this second episode, you're even more into philosophy and where I was going with the original question, it, it there's even more context now because, you know, you've studied the work of Da Vinci. You have one of his videos. You know, I think that you're a polymath in the truest sense of the word. And, and people will, you know, if they look at your work, like, holy smokes, you really have uh, a firm grasp on so many concepts and you're weaving them all together in a truly magical way. And what's probably most impressive to me is that you shared in a way that is understandable. Even when I did your courses for the resident science foundation some of it was way beyond me a lot of it is um i before we started i said it's like i understand it's like you're driving an f1 car and i can see the f1 car but you know how to build it you know step by step all all parts of the way and you're just kind of expressing that so the question that i have and you've you've kind of alluded to it a little bit when we look at the world and i just saw the australian thing and that was tough for me because i think it was like 500 million um, animals dead, you know, and we look at possible World War III and we look at the history of man. And, and I think that a massive upgrade for humanity would be peace. And I think about this question a lot and I like to pose it. I'm just curious, what do you think that we can do to move in that direction of finding our own, you know, 
peace within ourselves, that's got to be part of it. But on this planet, as a species, if there is intelligent life out there, if they're looking at us, if Lieutenant Fravor and that, those things are real and that's happening, um, how do we get to a, a point where I think that if we are an intelligent species and we can build rocket ships and go to the moon, how come we just can't get along? And, and how do we move in that direction in a, in a way that actually makes sense? Because we're only allowing ourselves to see one part of reality. Um, you know, there's a meme that I, that I posted on Instagram not too long ago, which shows like shadows on the wall of what is supposed to be a geometry. And on one side, on one wall, you see a circle and the shadow is around the circle. And then on the other wall, you see um, a, a square and the shadows around the square. But actually, when you, when you look at the object that's in between them, right, it's actually both. It's just looking at it from two different perspectives. It's a cylinder. And so from one angle, a cylinder looks like a square. And from another perspective, a cylinder actually looks like a circle. And from another perspective, it looks like a cylinder. It's actually all three. And so we simply don't have the means um, until we learn through our own self perspectives. We can only see one half of the world. We can only see our 180 degrees. And then even within that, it's our perspective within that. So even a Myers-Briggs analysis, have you ever had a Myers-Briggs test? Yeah. you know what your type is? Uh, I forget what it is. I think it's, yeah. I'm going to say you're probably an ENFP. It's like emotional, <laughs> feeling, oh, you're, you're, you're feeling visual. Yeah, you're extroverted, you're feeling, you're yep. intuitive, and I'm guessing your closet's not like super duper neat. <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay, so I just did a mini Myers-Briggs test on you. You're an ENFP, which means you're a visionary. You're the kind of person who is good at motivating people. So you definitely pick the right uh, career to be in. It's you're, you're in your in your wheelhouse, as it were. Um, you can sell, you know, ice to Eskimos type of thing. And, and your enthusiasm makes up for any gaps that you might have in your knowledge. And that's why people love you, right? Plus you connect with them at a heart level because you just, you wear your heart on your sleeve, whether you recognize it or not. But that's the world that you see the world through. And, and that's the prism through which you see the world. So then you start to wonder how anyone doesn't see through the same prism that you do. But you, we've all played that game of rumor, or we've all seen in courts how 20 people that are witnesses, eyewitnesses to the same crime, all see different things. It's because there are, multi, you know, the truth is multifactorial. It's multifaceted. And, and it's this, this notion that there's one objective truth on things means that there's only one perspective. And there's not really only one perspective. So that understanding that leads to a higher degree of empathy. When you have empathy, you have no desire for a war. But if there's one big thing that could change the whole world, it would actually be, um, it's interesting, I, I wrote this in a, in a text message just this morning to somebody else, that if people actually like themselves and truly love themselves, there would be no need for wars. It's not about liking the other side. It's about liking and loving themselves. And we see this time and time and time again. I mean. I remember I joke about this in my company. We have an offsite every six months or so. And, and one of the guys on the team who works in the accounting department, I asked him, I'm like, okay, who here likes to gamble? 
right? Who likes to gamble here? And of course, the guy that works in accounting raises his hand, right? I'm like, why do you like to gamble? He says, oh, you know, I like to go to Vegas. I like to like, you know, let my hair down and everything. And, and he goes, I, I, I'm very controlled though. I know my limits. I know my limits. And I said, do you think that wasting money is a sin? I used those words on purpose. And he said, oh yes, wasting money is a sin. It's wrong. You can't do it. It's unethical to waste money. I said, and yet you, you like to go to gambling. He says, well, it's not wasting money for me. It's controlled and calculated risk. And I find it fascinating that someone who loves to gamble wants to be an accountant because they don't want to show necessarily the whole world that they love to, you know, be reckless with money. And so the way that they can show the whole world that they are not reckless with money is by choosing accounting. Now, how many choices in our lives do we have like that? How many things have we chosen because we've decided I'm not going to, I don't want to be portrayed in a certain way. I want to be portrayed totally differently. So I'm going to choose a career that's totally in line with the way I don't want to be portrayed. Maybe that's how some people end up, you know, in certain jobs. Uh, why is it we have such a pedophilia problem in, you know, certain jobs? And I, I saw Ricky Gervais last night, who was like really brutally mean. And, I saw that too. I, saw, oh God, I don't know why they keep inviting him back, but it's amazing. It's like he's just so ruthless. It's amazing. I, he's so ruthless. <laughs> He's so ruthless, but he, you know, he he dropped a joke about the the recent movie, The Two Popes, and I watched that recently. I thought it was actually a very good film, and I didn't know the story. Interestingly, I didn't know the detail behind that came out of the story, which was fascinating about how the Pope wanted to resign, <laughs> which is like, how do you resign when you're the Pope, right? You're supposed to die, and then they'll choose a new Pope. Um, but this was something that the papacy faced. And I went to the Vatican in May of this, uh, this past year, 2019, and I got to speak in the Vatican on prime numbers, which is like, wow, right? I never thought I'd be getting an invitation. Uh, you know, this last year, I got to speak with the Dalai Lama about consciousness, mathematics, and physics. And I brought my, my friend, among others, uh, Nassim Hermain, with me. And we trekked all the way to Dharamsala up into the mountains of the Himalayas and got to meet with the Dalai Lama, spent five hours with him, had lunch with him. And it was a really epic discussion. So I'm so grateful that, that my life has taken these turns, right? These turns. And, and, and I really truly believe that the answer to peace, it goes back to, I don't know, Bob Marley. It goes back to Mahatma Gandhi. Be the change that you want to see in the world and have that change be something from the inside out. It starts within you. That changes the world. The world around us can either be a heaven or a hell. The moment that we start really perceiving it as a heaven, then you know you've actually made it. Because that's the reflection of what's on the inside of you. When it's consistently difficult and challenging, no matter what, and I'm not belittling what experiences and suffering people deal with, because everybody deals with different suffering. But when it's consistently that you're seeing the same patterns over and over and over again, those same patterns are there to teach us. It's like a trigger. Wake up. You know, consciousness can't speak to you directly. It has to speak to you through synchronicity. It has to speak to you through experiences that you keep perceiving over and over again through the lens or the prism of your own perspective. If we can change the way we perceive ourselves, 
there won't be need for wars anymore. And that's what I truly believe. When, when, when you start to recognize that the hurt of any man is the hurt of every man and woman, and the benefit of any man is the benefit of all men and women. That is a, just a different approach. It's an inward look on life rather than, geez, why are they doing all these terrible things? You know, what can I do internally to change the reflection? That's a completely different journey. And I think that's actually the main reason, I truly believe, why we're all experiencing this. That's amazing. I was just finishing taking a note. Um, I think that was very well put. And I really understand the prism idea because you, when you were sharing, you know, my uh, view, the Myers-Briggs, and it's, it is a prism that you see the world in. And if you're able to change that, uh, you're going to change your own experience. I use the example very often of just being very overweight and sick and ill. And it could be a lot of choices that you make to have that. You don't exercise, you eat really poorly, all these different things. But if you begin to just switch your thinking a little bit, start having a few new habits, start to just learn a little bit more about health. You know, I, I met a, a guy at the gym actually about a month ago and I'd seen him come in. He was very overweight and I just said, hey man, it's like good to see you. Like I see you're, you're keeping it up. He's like, yeah, man, I lost 189 pounds last year. I was like, you lost 189 pounds? I weigh like almost like... Like just a bit more than that. That's amazing. And so I asked him, I said, Hey, like, what was the change for you? Like, he's like, I was in a hospital bed and uh, I was going to lose both my legs. And they said there was, it was too late. That's what they told him. He said it was too late. So that day he went to the gym and he let himself go to that edge to make that change. But now because he's done it, he's had that experience. He can now be an example for many other people who are struggling with that same idea by being his own change and having his own, you know, uh, switch internally to literally transform his experience of life. And we can all do that in micro ways and major ways. And, and the more of us that live in a more holistic, fulfilled, um, self-love uh, manner and philosophy, we're not going to need to harm. It's like that old saying, hurt people, hurt people. And it's very, very true. So I think that very your true. answer is very true. Well, on the Myers-Briggs thing, you know, one of the things, exercises that I like to do with teams is I, you know, obviously do the test on what Myers-Briggs type everyone is. And then you can tell how their communication styles are going to work together on a team and who's generally going to be good in one particular task versus another. And that's what good leadership and management is about is being able to allocate resources efficiently and, you know, to highest and best use. Well, one of the things I asked them to do though, is that I asked them to read the opposite Myers-Briggs type as well. And then write down the three characteristics of your opposite Myers-Briggs type. Remember there's four dimensions of it. So you're either extroverted or introverted. You're either intuitive or sensory. You're either thinking or feeling, right? And you're either judgmental right? Or perceiving. Now, judgmental is probably not a good word for it. This is not the judgment way that you and I talk about. These tend to be people that are very, very, uh, you know, everything has to be super neat in their closet. They're going to go on a date. Nothing can be left to spontaneity. Everything is going to be planned in advance, right? And, and so I asked them to read their opposite type. So for your opposite type, so you didn't know this is going to be an interview on you, but on your opposite type, Matt, so if you're an ENFP, your opposite type would be an I, S, T, J. Okay. Now, what I just described is someone who is a very good manager. 
an ISTJ. And an ISTJ is someone who is super neat, incredibly neat, really efficient at managing resources, utilizes no emotion whatsoever in how they make those decisions. So it's all logos, no pathos at all, like no feeling, and uh, is sort of like robotic in how they deal with things. They don't take into account how people feel. They don't really care how people feel. It's going to be and these, the types of professions they end up in is like a manufacturing engineer, right? Is a good profession for an ISTJ. Uh, can be even be a senior executive in a corporation in a managerial capacity. Um, and, and, you know, those are the, or a policeman, policeman's another one that they, they're very, very strict and rigid. Some lawyers, especially patent lawyers, uh, although they'll often be INTPs. But basically, they choose all the things that they want to try to accentuate the things that they've chosen for who they are and their persona, right? And I asked the team members to write down, and, and no type is a good or a bad type. They're all good and bad at the same time. Everyone's got an equal amount of good and an equal amount of bad, right? Everybody shit stinks. It is what it is, right? Everyone could get over it and just accept it and love it. But I asked them to write down the three things that really trigger you about that rigid personality type. So the person I just described in ISTJ is a great manager, but can come across as extraordinarily rigid, not flexible at all, right? And I'm guessing that's probably something that would kind of get under your skin, maybe. They'd be like, wait, I don't understand that. There's heart involved here. You know, I've got this taskmaster over here. This taskmaster is not someone who I'm going to necessarily love. And so each of those things that you write down that trigger you, to emotion or anger or make you reminded of some experience you had as a child. You need to write those things down. And so let's say you wrote down one of those words, words was rigidity. Well, the next thing I asked them to do is to take those three things and give themselves self-affirmation and mantra and say, I am that, I am, on those three things and accept it. Because even though I have friends who are ENFPs that are just like you, in fact, my very best friend is an ENFP. When he gets into stress mode, he turns into an ISTJ fat fast. He's super dictatorial, tells everybody what to do. It gets over the top, but then it's like, when that happened, it was like the werewolf took over, right? It's like, oh, I killed again. There's blood over me in the morning, right? <laughs> And I'm gonna bet you that you probably have some of those similar characteristics when it comes to training or something, when it's like get shit done time and we're gonna get serious, right? You're gonna be freaking rigid. It's like, no, you said you weren't gonna eat this. You said you weren't gonna do this. You said you were gonna do this and I'm gonna hold you accountable. Am I right on that, Matt? Pretty accurate, yeah. Yeah, so in a stressful situation, you're gonna revert back to the opposite type. When actually the better way to do it is just to embrace it and say, I am that, I am. Integrate it into your life of who you are today, now, right? And don't try to be ashamed of it. You know, it's not the sin in the world that makes the world a bad place either. It's the shame. It's all the shame, the darkness that comes as a result. And we then don't accept ourselves. And by not accepting ourselves, we cannot, we are not capable of accepting others. That's amazing, man. Super well put. I don't even need to add on to the philosophy of that. I'm just going to leave it as it stands. 
Um, there's a lot that we can dive into and I want to shift gears a little bit unless there's anything you want to share on that. But I think that that was very well, but I was going to, I was going to uh, keep the philosophy for the end, but you dove right in and it's definitely something I love hearing about. And it's really amazing to have somebody whose work that I followed. It's, it's such a high level of work to be speaking about the core of things. You know, you can kind of go any way with it, but just speaking about um, integration and being a whole be a being and, and being more compassionate and being more un understanding of even yourself. And I think that those are something that many people struggle with. And, and if we can get to that space, we're going to have a better community, a better individual, a better world. And that's really where it ha all has to start because we can build on that. And a lot of people will talk about shadow work and things like that. And I think it is the rejection of the parts of ourselves that we don't love or we don't want to be or or, um, you know, we have trouble accepting that causes more pain, trying to mask it in different ways. So very well said and very important stuff. I, I did want to ask you a little bit about your view on because you um, just created like a code cracking thing um, that you presented and, and people are like, what is this stuff? And, and you're, you're um, so that's a big deal. You've come up with all these different mathematical discoveries. I see a lot out there now on um, you know, Elon Musk and Neuralink and artificial intelligence and the way the world is going. I remember reading something a while back and it, and it was an article about predicting the future. And it just talked about um, these technologies that were um, introduced to mankind that created a massive change in our culture and our civilization. So one of them was the alphabet printing press. Um, Don't forget, forget the wheel. The wheel's yeah. got to be somewhere. Yeah, the the wheel, you know what I mean? Like, and then the newest one is um, is the internet. And so now what we're experiencing is this exponential increase in technology. You know, you have 1,400 to 1,800, you're going to increase technology in some way. But you look at 1990 to 2020 and how vast we've increased. And so the example I like to use is a lot of the kids now listen to this, the older generation will understand it, is Atari. Kids don't even, they think they see a Super Nintendo and it blows their mind. Now they're stepping into VRs as their Atari. So what the flying heck is it going to be 30, 40, 50 years from now when this technology is, is so um, vastly improving and is it beyond us? So do, what do you feel about AI? Do you feel like it's something positive? It's something negative? Is it how we use it? Um, just curious what your thoughts are on it. First of all, I, I, probably take issue a little bit with the word artificial because I don't believe you can have artificial intelligence. Intelligence is intelligence. And I, you know, probably if I had a chance to, to redo that, I'm, I'm not really in the position to make that call, but um, I don't think I would call it artificial. I think it's just it's, it's technology that has created intelligence and that intelligence is part of the universe itself. The universe is intelligent. I mean, I could spend the rest of this call taking you through number patterns that would literally blow your mind and make you say, wait a minute, who made this system? And I'm gonna take you through some of them. And you would say, wait a minute, do we live in some kind of simulation or something? Because this is just too damn perfect, right? And what I'm gonna show you with relates to the foot, cubit, and meter and how they're all related to the same geometry and just different aspects of the same geometry, then you start to wonder, wait a minute, that was built into the Great Pyramid, which is the oldest building on the planet that's still standing today. 
right? That is as high as it is, it's as tall as it is. It was the tallest building in the world for 4,500 years at least. And by some calendar, you know, some historians believe that it might be much, much older than that, maybe 13,000 or even more years old. And when you start thinking about it in these terms, then you start recognizing, wait a minute, there is a pattern and maybe there's no such thing as randomness at all. So therefore, can there really be an artificial intelligence? Is that simply that, you know, randomness is something that we give as a name to things that we can't figure out the encryption of, right? That maybe there's just a deeper encryption we can't see, like layers of an onion, and that the pattern's actually there. And what I would say to you is that all my work in mathematics has been exactly that, that, you know, there is, I've not found anywhere where there's no pattern yet. Like nowhere. It took me longer to find the pattern sometimes than, than other things for certain. But, you know, prime numbers are a good example of this. They're supposed to be totally random, not predictable, and yet we found the pattern that predicts prime numbers infinitely. And that isn't disputed. Um, no one's been able to write a proof against that that holds any water in any way, shape, or form because it's just a fact. It just is what it is. And You'll see this in the other stuff I'm going to present today. But, you know, as far as artificial intelligence goes, again, number one, I don't think it's artificial. Number two, I think eventually these iPhones that we use, you know, may end up inside your eye. And this is a little one of these types of technologies that we work on called an intraocular lens. It goes inside of your eye. And on that little tiny board there, which is uh, black, looked like a black donut in the center of this, you can put a tiny, tiny little camera called a CMOS camera, and you can record virtually every experience that you have in your life. And it can all go to a cloud somewhere so that if you wanted to access all your memories, you could. Maybe you download it to your next cloned body or something. I don't know. We could insert any Black Mirror episode you'd like here, but... There's literally an exact episode of that exact thing. Are yep. you saying that it's a, it's a lens, like a contact lens, or it's in my eyeball? Because if it's in my eyeball, that freaks me out. If it's a contact lens, I feel like I'm okay with it. No, it's, it's in your eyeball. Jeez. In your eyeball. So you don't have to deal with the pain of, of changing it. Now, I had this idea in 2013 and, um, and filed patents on it, and the patents got issued, and... You know, my philosophy is a lot like uh, like Tesla's and Elon Musk on this one. Is you have to file patents in today's world to protect it so other people won't block the world from using it, right? It's just the nature of the beast. And, and so, you know, I filed lots of patents on different things, but my general philosophy is similar to Elon's, which is, okay, you know, obviously I want to get a good return for shareholders, et cetera, just like any other person who has that obligation to do so. But at the same time, I'm not, you know, like Elon Musk announced uh, last year where they're going to make, you know, their patents available to people. They can. They're just not going to pursue. What that means is the patents are available to everybody already, but it just means they're not going to sue people that go and happen to infringe those patents, right? And, you know, we, we certainly have that option, I guess, available to us. And my philosophy is, as an inventor, I would just love to see these technologies come to existence from ideation to materialization. And um, I do think that there's an opportunity for advancing human cognition. Now, there's all kinds of questions and some of them ethical type questions 
right? Of is it right to have some human beings be able to access Google inside their eye when they're taking a test or whatever? Or do we have to now worry about being on video all the time, right? Or are people listening to us all the time now because they've got some sort of recording device that they can have that no one else is going to know is even on? Well, what you just described is every Alexa and you know Google Home device that that exists today, right? I'm I'm going to people's houses all the time, and all my conversation is basically being listened to and recorded. Oh, and by the way, if I just simply all of a sudden throw in the word Siri, this thing will turn on too, right? No thanks. So there needs to be encryption to protect. Uh, so that the times that we don't want to be on air, we won't necessarily be on air. And and those encryptions and scrambling technologies are some of the things that we work on in in one of our companies here. So so I think that that you know probably the light bulb had a massive impact in the 20th century on the pace of innovation and technological breakthroughs um, because now people could go from having to deal with candles at night to being able to work at night right as if it was the middle of the day and and i i think that we're the internet is kind of a a leap in that regard i think that the internet allows us to have access i mean i can access more than the Library of Alexandria right here in my iPhone just by doing a search on things. So it allows me to learn things much faster. I can take physics courses from Richard Feynman, even Albert Einstein, even you know some of the Leonard Susskind at Stanford University. I can take courses from Ken Wheeler and many, many others that I would never have taken the courses at the university, but they're all accessible now online from the top physicists in the world. I can do the same thing with mathematics. I can do the same thing with any subject. And that's unprecedented in the history of mankind, having that rapid access. So I think it is changing the pace of innovation. I think it will continue to change the pace of innovation. There's a good book on this. Some would say it's a sort of a dystopian, futuristic kind of look at, at where technology is going under Moore's Law. It was written by uh, Ray Kurzweil, a futurist. And it's called Singularity, right? Singularity is near. And basically, it's saying that by you know 2040, we'll be able to create eternal life. So whether that means you're going to be uploading your past memories into a new body or cloning yourself or whatever it means, or some cybernetic consciousness, I don't know. What I can tell you is that this is already happening right now. All these technologies are already moving that direction. I think society is going to have to ask the questions, you know, is this going to be the next Skynet or whatever? Um, and, and I, I think it will be what you perceive it as. So if we perceive it something to be terrified of, it will probably be something to be terrified of. If we perceive it as something that can be a tool, just like anything else, you know, a lot of people didn't like the fact that cars were invented. You know, the horse and buggy business went out of business. It, it is what it is, right? It's like there, there was a whole business and people made buggy whips, right, for their horses when cars came out. And then those businesses basically went to the wayside. And I think that's gonna likely be the case with any kind of disruptive innovation. There's gonna be disruption and there's gonna be change and, and something is gonna die. Like one tree in the forest is gonna to have to fall to make way for the new trees and the new fauna, right? And the new flora to come and spring to life in that same forest. You know, after the fires in Australia, 
There will be new life that will end up, and it's amazing how fast it happens too. It's truly amazing how fast it happened. We have fires here in California all the time. Within two years, you can't even know that the place was on fire. It's, it's really amazing. And that's just the way that nature works. It's just the, the process of the universe. So I, I am, you know, an optimist in general. And it's not that I'm trying to seek out technologies that are going to be dystopian or cause problems for the world or something like that. No, the, the inventor is generally an eternal optimist. They only want good things to happen with their technologies. Even, you know, sometimes when things go awry, I was watching the Facebook, uh, you know, Senate subcommittee hearings and the congressional committee hearings with, uh, with Mark Zuckerberg. And I'm sure Mark was probably thinking, man, I never wanted my company to be this, right? When I had this idea to connect people on the internet, or maybe it was the Winklevoss twins. I'm not sure. But the truth is no founder of a company or inventor is ever thinking about how their invention can wreak havoc on the world. That's not the way it is. The way it truly is, is they, they create something because they have an intention. And it's not usually to make money. It really is not. I can tell you, I know lots of entrepreneurs and lots and lots of creators who didn't get into it to make a lot of money or to get rich. In fact, I can always tell whenever some kind of entrepreneur is talking to me or uh, someone who wants to be an entrepreneur who's been a professional manager who starts talking about how much money they're going to make doing something. First of all, I kind of run the other direction. I don't really want to be around that type of thing because there has to be balance in everything, right? You can't just keep, you know, taking forests off the planet. We've already got the planet having fires already as it is. You have to replenish. And it cannot be that you just take, take, take. It's got to be that there's a symbiotic relationship there and the yin-yang of life. So um, the entrepreneurs I know and entrepreneurs I know are people that generally want to create something that will be helpful to mankind. Um, and there are very, very rare exceptions to that. I've seen maybe a few, but, uh, but not many at all. I can tell you that much right now. So I don't see it as a, a big dystopian future thing. Again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Um, I think that people can get wrapped around the, the wheel well, or get wrapped around their own axles, uh, going down these rabbit holes of conspiracy. Um, you know, and we see it sometimes with people that believe the earth is flat and that everyone is against them. And it's not the flower of life, it's the daisy of death and all this stuff. It's like, you know what? They're entitled to their own opinions on things. It's perfectly fine. And I accept them just the way they are. I don't need to change them. That's a big shift in my life. I don't need to change them. The only thing I, that I may want to change, but I'm happy with who I am and what I'm doing right now is me. And, and that is my, my own prescription, my own solution for myself, not for anybody else. But I don't know if that answers your question, but I do see technology moving at a very rapid pace and continue to do so. Um, and I see humanity and what we've defined as human capacity as being dramatically um, affected and shifted, not only as a result of technology, but as a result of our own expansion of consciousness. And I, I think people are going to be able to do things that they couldn't do before. Um, you know, I, I, I think people are going to be able to have capacities. They'll be able to recognize once we get out of this realm of constantly perceiving the world in terms of scarcity, think about what changes with that. And the ultimate scarcity is time itself. Time. Hmm. Think about it. Everything we do on this world that relates to money relates somehow to time. 
Time is a unit of scarcity. It's the ultimate unit of scarcity. The moment we're born, we're starting to die. And so if we could figure out a way to extend that lifetime, then you're not forced into choosing a career so early. Maybe you could experience several careers over the course of your lifetime. Maybe you, maybe you could experience several different hobbies over the course of your lifetime. You wouldn't be stuck in doing only like one or two things because you have to be hyper-specialized, which is another thing I think is super wrong with our current education system, hyper-specialization. And I think it could be so much improved. It's not that it's bad. It's just I think the whole system could be dramatically improved. Bringing the heart and mind together into one can really change people's perceptions. And I, I would hope that in the future, our educational systems can also move, hopefully, more in that direction and less in the realm of hyper-specialization. You know, it's funny, since they've gotten rid of music in some schools and art in some schools, test scores have gotten worse. They haven't gotten better. And, and I, I think that's, again, you will continue to chase those things. You'll attract what you judge until you no longer judge what you attract. And if you're trying to chase better test scores, the more you try to focus on those test scores, watch it, it will, those test scores will end up going down by, by all the judgment that we're making about, oh, well, you know, music and art are frivolous pursuits. Actually, music and art, look at the Chinese. They're really good at music in particular. When I was in MBA school, half the guys in my class were Chinese and Indians because they had a different way of looking at mathematics. They look at it more naturally as a musical construct. They look at it more naturally as a language. And, and yet we've gotten deeper and deeper into a Western way of looking at math, devoid of any esoteric value or any value that could be other than just the objective of arithmetic. And I, I think that's going to change. So as, as we advance, as people who are inwardly focused, who are able to accept themselves the way they are without judgment, we then relay that lack of judgment to the outside world. And there's only two things we really need to do, philosophically, in my opinion. It's love everybody because they are reflections of you. And don't judge anybody because when you do, you're just judging yourself. That's it. <laughs> there's, there's not more to it. It's not more complex than that. But, you know, technology is going to do what it's going to do. And there's a pattern that's established here. And the pattern is going to continue to go forward. It's not going to all of a sudden stop. And just because someone says, oh, it's, it's, it's wrong to pursue, you know, artificial intelligence. Aren't we playing God? Um, doesn't mean that all of a sudden artificial intelligence is going to stop. In this regard, I think it's funny because Elon Musk is probably the most vocal advocate uh, about how we need to limit artificial intelligence. But he's probably one of the biggest entrepreneurs focusing on putting his dollars in that area, right? Cars that drive themselves, um, you know, Neuralink, those types of technologies. And I have deep, deep respect for Elon Musk. I think he's an amazing, amazing guy. And I am blown away by what he does every day. But, you know, again, it's, it's like the things that you're afraid of is the thing that you are. The things that you judge in others is the thing you are. And that's true for me and it's true for everybody. So, um, if you like, Matt, I can get into some of this math stuff. Yeah, definitely. I just wanted to make a quick comment because you opened up 
probably a thousand can of worms just on that little mini rant. But I was reminded of uh, the Bible and people living up to 900 years, 900 years plus, and how interesting we would be if like, you know, we lived 100 years, 200, 300 years, how how differently we would view life. And, and you look at, that's why people, um, you, I like studying with indigenous cultures and what I've learned from them, because one of the, it's a lot of basics. And one of the basis is respecting your elders and how much wisdom comes from that. And, you know, my family and culture was a little bit that way, but the indigenous cultures are, they're a lot more. There's, there's so much more wisdom in a person who's lived 80 years, 90 years. Well, imagine three or 400 years, it would change the whole paradigm. So the, um, you know, time is the ultimate unit of scarcity is such a fascinating and critical perspective to kind of have a, have a hold of because everybody needs more time, right? So I just thought that was a really fundamental thing to share. And yeah, you know, I think some of my listeners really look at, they look at the world and they are the conspiracy ones. And I definitely am and was, but less. I was, I was in there so heavy and because I wanted to know how we still had war. And so I went into all that. And I think that that exists. And I do think that there are systems out there that are probably not for the benefit of all and they exist and they're not doing the greatest things. But what is more important, once I understand that, is what do I do about it? And I can choose then, now what will I do? So my friends were arguing, my my buddy exploded the internet the other day and put a comment about um, the education system in Canada and certain people making over 100K a year. And he was saying like the higher ups who are organizing it and everybody lost their mind. And I was reminded, and I share this quote a lot, it's the one by Buckminster Fuller that says, you never change the things, uh, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. And so when you look at all these heated divisions of people arguing these two different sides, if they were to work together, even just like 10% of that faction work together on any potential solution that was 1% better than the thing that they didn't like, we would have monumental changes. And so I think it's that perspective shift to saying, hey, this is something that we're resisting, that we don't like, that we can improve upon. It's up to us and the individual to say, hey, let's actually work together and spend this time and this energy. And a lot of the time when you're in those realms, it's very um, intense energy. So use that intense energy on the solution. And uh, we, we're going to be experiencing something a lot better than bickering because that doesn't change anything. And your focus is just going to bring you more of it, like you said, and it doesn't help anyone and it doesn't help you. So very well said. And yeah, I'd love for you to get into the, some of the math. And I was going to ask, maybe we'll save it for later, but talked a little bit about AI, but I'm curious if anybody's going to crack the code of simulation and patterns, it's you. So I don't know if you've worked into that, but uh, I, I'm excited to see what you've discovered over the holidays. You said that you had a little bit of a break. So yeah, <laughs> show, us, show us what you got and try to put it in layman's terms and I'll try to, layman, I'll try to focus. <laughs> I'll put it in layman's terms. So, so what I've got, can you see this that's up here? Yeah, you're good. Okay, so you see the Vesco Piscus here. So this is just two circles that overlap each other. And this was a discovery that Alan Green and I, in our collaborative efforts and work efforts together, uh, had found that all numbers are formed from their square roots. And their square roots are formed as just proportional ratios of these two circles overlapping each other. It's inherent to the geometry world. So for example, right, the, the square root of one, so the radius of each circle is one, so let's just call that one unit, 
and the square root of one is this radius, right? The square root of two, and these lines that you see that are dotted here would be if we had an overlapping flower of life and its fractals behind it, those would be each of the points of intersection of other lines. So circles overlapping circles. The square root of two shows up right here. The square root of three is very evident. It's embedded right inside this vesica, right? That all life and everything comes out of. The square root of three is a value of 1.732. So if your radius is one, then this length right here would be 1.732. And we could do this with all numbers going around. So you can see square root of five, square root of six, square root of seven, square root of eight, square root of nine, it just keeps going. All embedded in one simple geometry, which we know also has very significant esoteric meaning, right? Which is related to, you know, you see this symbol as well as three circles overlapping all the time in ancient uh, religious texts as well as ancient religious sites. And speaking of, oops. so this is the prime number pattern. And, you know, again, it's kind of beyond refutation. You, you can't argue against it. Uh, I found that the yellow numbers are prime squared, and, and I noticed that prime squared above the number five were always multiples of 24 plus one without exception. So five times five is 25. So that's one times 24 plus one. And seven times seven, the next prime number is 49. And that's two times 24 plus one. And then 11 times 11 is 121. And that's five times 24 plus one. And then 169 is seven times 24 plus one, right? And it just keeps going that way into infinity. And um, basically when I had discovered that, and I was like, well, wait a minute, there really has to be something related to 24. And Fibonacci numbers repeat their sequence when viewed in digital root every 24 numbers. And so the red numbers on here are all the prime numbers. The green numbers were numbers that were not prime but had similar characteristics to prime. And I recognize that all the green numbers on this 24-hour clock arrangement were divisible only by prime numbers. And then the blue numbers in between the prime numbers and the quasi-prime numbers that are divisible by prime numbers and products of primes were mathematical constants. And they show up exactly on this chart. Now, there are ancient pictures of uh, Sumerian stela where you'll see people wearing necklaces that are exactly this shape. It looks like a Templar cross. So this knowledge is something that I believe was known a long time ago that somehow was forgotten. And that's a longer discussion about how it was forgotten, but that is basically the pattern. Now, the reason why I got invited to speak at the Vatican was about this. And the reason I was invited to go to speak with the Dalai Lama was also about this, because it has certain spiritual connotations associated with it. That if there's a pattern to that which has been perceived previously as incredibly random, then that speaks to an architect or some form thereof of higher consciousness. So uh, coming to today, I'll show you this quick, uh, this quick video. And this is some work we did on uh, Da Vinci and his Vitruvian man. And Alan Green and I did this together. Can you still see that, Matt? Uh, I think you got a screen share. Yeah, can you still see it? I can see you. Oh, you can only see me. Okay. It kind of popped out. You might have to pop back in. All right, let me pop back up. 
Yeah, and Alan Green, too, is incredibly fascinating. And one of the – you do a lot of smart things, uh, but one of the smartest things I think that you do is you find other people that you respect who've done incredible work, and then you you work with them. Like Alan Green stuff, I was aware of him before I saw you in Egypt, and then I, I remember thinking – be fascinating if they work together and then fast forward a year and a half you know you're with him and you you speak a lot about uh, Talal Ghanem and so you have these other incredible minds with you working on things and finding these absolutely mind-blowing uh, discoveries that are linked in you know Egypt what Alan Green has done with the pyramids is is amazing and so what what I, I've seen this and it's pretty amazing so what you guys are going to continue to discover I feel is is going to be um, very important. Can, can you still see the Vitruvian Man picture? Now on the I got you. Yep, you're you're in the game now. Vitruvian Man, drawn circa 1490 by the great Leonardo da Vinci. It's probably the most famous image of all time, and yet for over five centuries, no one has noticed he encoded within it astounding knowledge of the Great Pyramid of Giza. Polymath. Robert Grant recently observed that the angle from the navel to the top corner of the square exactly matches the side slope angle of the pyramid. Aware that his cryptologist friend, Alan Green, had discovered precision sacred geometry connections to the pyramid hidden in the cover of Shakespeare's sonnets, Grant asked him to investigate da Vinci's masterpiece with the same mathematical rigor. What they found challenges our entire concept of what this enigmatic work of art is really about. It's widely known that the Great Pyramid embodies the ratio of the radiuses of the Earth and Moon. But Green realized that by inscribing a circle within Da Vinci's square and raising that circle so its center coincides with the center of the Vitruvian Man circle at the navel, six perfect pyramid cross-sections are revealed, along with an exact geometrical match of the Earth-Moon pyramid relationship. Da Vinci states explicitly in the backwards mirrored text surrounding his image that its proportions are exact integer ratios of the whole man and he's cut his man in 14 places, clearly identifying those proportions. In addition, he says, decrease the height of man by 1 14th, a second veiled reference to the Horus Eye myth in which Seth cuts Osiris' body into 14 parts. Now, the magic. Da Vinci's lines reveal a perfect blueprint of the internal structure of the pyramid's chambers. Only the queen's chamber seems to be missing. But is it? Queen Isis, mourning the cutting of her husband's body into 14 parts, represents the 14 phases of the waning moon. Her reconstituting Osiris' body represents the 14 phases of the waxing moon. Da Vinci has precisely identified the presently known subterranean, queen's, and king's chambers, the ground level of the pyramid, its defining side angle, 
and its mathematical relationship to Earth and Moon, centuries before these were supposedly known. Which begs the question, do his upper lines represent presently unknown chambers? Da Vinci seems to be telling us the Great Pyramid hides a deeper esoteric symbolism than has ever been suspected. A blueprint of man's unfolding spiritual journey through the sacred energy centers in the spine, known as the chakras. Perhaps finding these inner chambers in ourselves is our ultimate purpose and the Great Pyramid, but a metaphor for the true measure of mankind. So I'm super excited. I'm going back to uh, Egypt in another, uh, you know, several weeks. And um, I'm just, it's going to be an epic trip. We've got, uh, we're going to do all kinds of stuff that's never been done before. And um, I cannot wait. I'm very, very excited about that trip. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the absolutely phenomenal Robert Grant. I hope that you enjoyed part one. Part two gets a little bit more mind-blowing. We're going to start talking about Egypt, AI, uh, and all kinds of stuff. It's really amazing. I invite you to check out Robert's Instagram, Robert Edward Grant, because he's always posting things from his journal, his mathematical discoveries, um, sacred geometry, all kinds of stuff. I barely understand what he's sharing. So if you guys can help me out, please let me know. But it's super fascinating, the stuff that he's working on, and I love how he's able to bring it all together and make it meaningful. So I know you guys are going to enjoy the next episode. Be on the lookout for that. Thank you to all my patrons. Thank you to everybody who's listening and supporting. Please go over to mattbelair.com, sign up for the email list, stay in touch. I'd love to hear from you guys uh, on Instagram, Facebook, or wherever. Any kind of feedback, uh, anything you want to send, please send it my way. Happy to uh, learn, support, anything to gr grow the show and just make it better. Just make it a better experience. So I always want to hear from you guys. And thanks to everybody joining the Mastermind Body and Spirit Academy. Uh, that subscription gets you access to new stuff that's coming out. Uh, the Soul Compass course is free with the membership and also um, exclusive content that I'm working on with feedback from the community. So you guys let me know what you want and I will build it out as we go along, adding new content each and every month just for the members. This way I can give my daughter sandwiches this time and uh, keep this pod podcast going and interviewing these absolutely phenomenal people and sharing their story and their message so thank you guys so much for your support thank you for listening i hope you have an amazing day let's come into a state of peace and coherence wherever you are in the world to stop what you're doing take in a deep breath in through your nose hold that breath and just let it out slowly filling every cell every muscle and every fiber of your being with peace joy contentment enthusiasm inspiration and ready to take on the rest of the day so thank you so much for listening We'll see you in the next episode. Peace.